0: Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. I'm your host, Genevieve Marcochi. For today's in-depth episode, I am joined with Bernard Kaleri, Australian barrister, lawyer and former Attorney General. He is being prosecuted for conspiring against the government.
1: And I find what Witness K told me equally shocking and consistent with a pattern of deceit that should be disowned by every Australian it is being disowned by my generation, and I appeal to your generation to take action and disown that kind of disgusting behaviour.
0: Today, we are discussing Australia's national security through the lens of the Witness K trial. The trial has been sanctioned through special powers to be held in secret away from public eye. The Australian government is considered to be abusing its power as it's condemning an honest whistleblower and his lawyer. Now for some background on the case. Currently, Bernard Kaleri is being prosecuted for conspiring with his former client, intelligence officer Witness K, for exposing the happenings in 2004. Australia secretly and illegally bugged East Timor's government buildings in Dili to gain an unfair advantage in crucial oil and gas negotiations. The Treaty on Certain Maritime Arrangements in the Timor Sea was signed in January 2006 by Foreign Minister Alexander Downer. In 2012, the Gillard government made the spy allegations public. Then in 2013, Bernard's home and office were raided, as was the home of Senior ACES Officer Witness Cape. He had told the intelligence watchdog about the bugging, yet was sidelined. Witness K then engaged Kaleri as his lawyer. It wasn't until 2018 that both were secretly charged with sharing classified information. Yet this was only made known due to Anthony Wilkie MP revealing it under his parliamentary privilege in June 2018. Now, the National Security Information Act 2004 is being used to keep the trial secret. Thank you for being here, Benam. It's
1: a pleasure, uh, Jen. Pleasure.
0: So firstly, the National Security Information Act 2004 aims to strike a balance between the interests of national security and justice. Can you explain briefly what this Act is actually preventing you from saying and doing?
1: Well, this legislation was introduced after the 9-11 uh, terrorist attacks. It um, was passed through the parliament in the context of terrorism, although the government realised it had to sharpen up some court procedural secrecy rules so that terrorists couldn't use the trials to uh, put on a showcase, find out the identity of uh, spooks and, and so forth. No one conceived or thought at that time that the procedure would be used to hide political embarrassment, to hide matters that don't go to national security, but go to embarrassment. Now I'm forbidden under that terrorist law now from adopting some of the descriptions of the misconduct in Delhi that you've given it. I'm not allowed to say anything about it anymore. That's the essence of the use of that act, which we call the NSI Act, use of that act to quench our democratic rights. So here I am, a lot of my career uh, on civil liberty cases Um, human rights issues have been silenced uh, because the issue is of great embarrassment to former Prime Minister Howard and former Foreign Minister Downer and the officials who were involved with them in what I can only call at the moment misconduct. Now, the vast majority of Australians, as you know, Jen, because you wouldn't be in touch with me if you hadn't noticed, are very critical of what they think was improper conduct and nothing to do with Australia's national security. So yes, when Mr. Morrison became Prime Minister and said he'd model his government on former Prime Minister John Howard, I think uh, I groaned because it became clear to me that they're never going to allow, willingly, details of this misconduct to emerge. Some of your listeners will remember the children overboard affair when Prime Minister Howard and another one of his ministers asserted that mothers would throw their babies into the sea so they could get a a refugee visa. Now that's been comprehensively debunked and was a deceit and uh, that was embarrassing to the then government. Why Mr Morrison would want to model his government on that of John Howard in the context of subterfuge and deceit, I'll never know. I think he might regret having said that, but now now he's stuck with it.
0: Can I ask at what point of the trial proceedings
1: are you at? Uh, we've had 30, nearly 40 appearances, and we still don't have a trial date. I haven't been indicted as such, and we are still arguing and now appealing uh, the question of whether there is to be, as far as the core issue is concerned, a secret trial. That is, are the public going to be allowed to know what I'm referring to as misconduct? And why is this case so important for the public to know about? This is the authoritarian edge to the current government. Uh, I'm old enough to remember that way back in the Whitlam uh, years, Labor had been out of power for 23 years They came back in and they believed there'd been a conspiracy all those years to keep them out of power. They believed that the internal security agency, that is ASIO, had been recruiting anti-communist migrants abroad, turning a blind eye to anti-communist criminal records and bringing them into Australia. And there was this breathtaking announcement in the parliament that those of us who were serving in government at the time were appalled by where the then Attorney-General and his Minister for Immigration, Mr Grasby, said there were 415 identified Croatian Ustashi terrorists in Australia. Well, I actually got that list. Most of it was nonsense and it had been sold on the, gov- the Whitlam government uh, by a satellite Soviet satellite intelligence services. So that, that was a frenzy. And then there's been another frenzy in recent years where... We've focused on terrorism and not looked at really important issues such as covert Chinese influence amongst our ministry in our bureaucracies. took our eye off the game for many years. And um, at the moment, we've got a government determined to cling to power. We have a very weak opposition. And it's got all the ingredients of the sort of repressive Trump-style populist government manipulations we're watching happen in America and will happen here if we're not careful. So this case is very important. Really, as far as I'm concerned, the last offence now are the courts of our land, our judges.
0: Do you think people would actually know about this case if it wasn't for Andrew Wilkie MP in 2018 revealing it?
1: I don't think you would know about it. And as you know, recently, um, and I don't know what the alleged details of the alleged offence were, but Witness J, someone entirely different who'd worked in the intelligence community, was tried, sentenced, and jailed in secret in Canberra. Now, that's no different from the Soviet gulags of the the Soviet era, and it's no different from what's happening in China and other repressive countries. So that's a cause for concern. And uh, full marks to Andrew Wilkie, the independent MP from Tasmania, who had the courage with other crossbenchers to come forward. It's clear that there are many individual members of the other parties, the mainstream parties, as if I call them, who would like to come forward, but they're bound by these pyramidal leadership issues those parties have. Currently, there's a lot
0: already known about the case in terms of what actually happened because of Andrew Wilkie. So this suppression order kind of feels like something the government is trying to protect themselves mostly and hide something because your side and Witness K's side is kind of on the table, but theirs isn't.
1: Well, I don't think they want to see Alexander Downer and John Howard in the witness box being cross-examined by by lawyers. And the last thing they want to see is me getting evidence as to what Witness K told me and what my legal advice was to Witness K. One of the um, misnomers in this matter, and I must say a single judge of the Supreme Court and the ACT adopted this erroneous approach, is that the witness K came forward and, and I took on the case because we thought it was unjust to the Timorese. Well, well that, that of course goes without saying, but witness K came to me as an approved lawyer, a lawyer with a security assessment that allowed me to know things in the intelligence community. Witness K had the approval of the Inspector General of Security to see me and Witness K wanted a finding that the misconduct, which I can't tell you about, Jen, because we're no longer in a full democracy, um, that conduct was unlawful and that his retirement, inverted commas from his intelligence service was effectively enforced to bring about a changed culture. Once again, I can't tell you what that changed culture was because I've been silenced by this anti-terrorist law that was sold on the opposition and they supported it through the parliament, believing it would be used on terrorists and people who had made genuine attacks on our security. So there you have it, people think that Witness K was a whistleblower who came out and gave secrets out publicly, and I support him because we thought it was unjust. Certainly it was unjust, but the first injustice was to witness K and his colleagues. He not being alone in being in commas, retired. So you had a very senior person coming forward about a change culture. I've said that in the Parliament and through my right to answer claims by Senator Brandis that it was a national security issue. And I am anxious to stand up in court and give the evidence that a citizen of this democracy should be able to. There is an international agency that measures democracy in the world. It's uh, well-established and well-known. It's based in South Africa, supported by eminent lawyers around the world. They made a finding last week that Australian democracy is no longer a free democracy. It's a narrowed, is the term they use, a narrowed democracy. I tell you, Jen, living in Canberra for the last 40, 50 years, that uh, we have a very fragile democracy at the moment. Your generation, your generation particularly, are going to have to pick up the pieces and rebuild it. And worst thing of all is, at the moment, like we did all through the 60s and 70s, every time Washington pointed the finger at Moscow, we parroted back little Sir Echo Deputy Sheriff to Washington. We're doing it again with China at the moment, picking a huge, big fight that we could never finish ourselves, lining up again in the Cold War, and that will cost millions of Australians uh, economic security we had. Now, as you know, I've acted for the Falun Gong against Foreign Minister, interestingly against Mr Downer in those years, on the right of the Falun Gong practitioners exercise medicine group, Uh, to protest outside the Chinese embassy. So I'm no pro-Chinese person. I just say that once again, we've got blinkered foreign policy run by very narrow clique in our foreign ministry.
0: You mentioned before about the Witness J trial. It's interesting that these letters are being thrown around to describe witnesses' cases. Do you think that there's a place for the whistleblowers that came before them? Maybe Witness A to J, there's something to be said about people only hearing about the K
1: trial at the moment. So I don't know, Jen, whether your guys yeah. have seen that film ABC recent images of the cold blooded execution of an unarmed seated person in Afghanistan, apparently by our troops. Now you've got um, a guy on secret trial for allegedly breaching security by revealing things like that. You've had a journalist, uh, Anika, Anika Smethurst, home raided her. Her clothing drawer searched through because she reported that Uncle Sam was going to adopt some more data matching facial recognition policies. You've got all the hallmarks of an authoritarian regime developing in our country. And countries in our region that practice the same things, such as China, must be delighted to see that in Canberra, the national capital of Australia, there are now secret trials. They must be delighted because how do we criticize the way the Chinese trial their citizens and occasionally Australian citizens in China when we're doing just that, just that. So this is the foreign policy disaster. This is not like a law and order issue. This is at base a small clique of bureaucrats advising the ministers generally with some exceptions, because I'm actually an admirer of Maurice Payne, our current foreign minister, but this is an unhealthy atmosphere at the moment. In the 60s and 70s, there were very powerful mandarins in the public service. I, I remember them as a young man. And ministers more or less quaked in their boots when the mandarins got together and met with them. I don't know if that's the case now, but I had a very worrying week of closed court a few weeks ago. Any of you sitting there would have wondered whether you were in Australia or in some repressive regime. It's
0: really striking to hear. You recently lodged an appeal on the 24th against the suppression of the trial.
1: What was kind of the motivation behind that? The single judge of the Supreme Court had to decide whether there'd be an open hearing of the core issue, the NSI Act that we talked about earlier has a provision in it that we've never had before in our laws in Australia. It said that a judge has to decide whether to close a court or not. The judge has to give the greatest weight to the opinion of the attorney general. Now, whether that's constitutionally uh, wise, I think there's only one answer, very unwise, whether it's constitutionally invalid in these days of terrorism and the rest, as yet to be tested in the, in presumably the high court. But um, the judge ruled that the core issue, which I say is totally unrelated to national security because there's no issue about identity of people, techniques, anything that could possibly damage national security in an open hearing. Perversely, the attorneys of a view that an open hearing would prejudice national security. Presumably, it would. Uh, delight China, as if China's not already delighted, and it would make countries in our region worried about their own safety and security. I mean, the whole thing's absurd. I mean, everyone who reads the John le Carre novel, novel, watches the movies, James Bond and all the rest, knows that things happen, things that I can no longer address. But uh, we haven't lodged the appeal yet, because just after we got the judges' reasons, The Attorney General, that's a young Christian Porter, the Federal Attorney General who who comes from Perth, where he was Attorney General in Western Australia. Uh, His officers came and took the judge's uh, reasons office a few minutes later, took them from us, said there were secrets in it that couldn't be public. We've had another hearing uh, in the court where the attorney's officers have asked the judge to take things out of his judgment and redact them can you believe it? As weeks have passed I haven't had the opportunity to read the unredacted judgment which I'm entitled to read um, I presume and um, and I'll tell you why I live in Canberra. Um, The attorney's offices um, have got an order that says I can only talk to my lawyers in a room that they've checked in Sydney and uh, I have to go after Sydney if I want to talk about the case unredacted details uh, in Sydney. Now I'm I'll be 76 soon. Uh, as if I want to go, be going to Sydney at the moment with the coronavirus around, it's so wrong and oppressive. And it belongs in Moscow and belongs in Beijing. This is going to go on until your generation use your votes and and get these people out of government as soon as you can and get reasoned, decent people coming forward to reflect the values that your generation want, Jen. That's why I've agreed to do this podcast at some risk because Mm. um, we live in a a dangerous time, a, a really dangerous time to be speaking out about government. There's been really low media coverage recently. Is that purely
0: due to the fact that the information wasn't released straight after the facts. Well, the, s- uh,
1: gen- the journalists aren't allowed in the courtroom. What are they going to report? That there was a protest outside the court? I mean, they're mostly people my generation, that's why I'm so delighted that young diplomats is taking interest in this, because my generation have seen what happened. You know, the irony is that in 1939, we faced World War Two. Japan was on the march, and we'd seen what had happened in China with the Japanese troops the rape and the massacres in in Nanking, and we were facing a really a bestial potential invader. We were unprotected, and Singapore fell, and our parliament passed a National Security Act. Ironically, that's the earlier MSI Act. There was no question that if foreign saboteurs and internees, you know, Japanese living in Australia, uh, wanted to appeal uh, in court, there was no question that the court would be closed at the order of an attorney general that act in face of invasion said that it was the judge's role to close his or her court now if we didn't do that with japan threatening us with invasion why have we done it in this century and allowed our courts to be over cited and giving greatest weight to a young politician of the calibre of Christian Porter. And when I say calibre, I refer to his record as Attorney General in Western Australia and otherwise in Australia. It's a matter for people to judge whether Christian Porter himself as Attorney General and his advisers are giving objective, independent advice on the alleged prejudice to national security uh, of having a hearing in public. We'll be back in a moment. We are always looking for new writers. Whether you're here in Melbourne or abroad, visit us at our website, theyoungdiplomats.com, under the Get Involved tab to find out more. So
0: how do you see the role of the media playing alongside the case? Well,
1: there's an old saying, Jen, publicity is the soul of justice. Just think across the years. Courageous journalists are often the... Protection we have between authoritarianism, fascism, and totalitarianism. Journalists suffer. I used to belong to the PEN Group, which is an international group that protect journalists. If you watch Al Jazeera in the morning, sometimes on SBS, you see that there are journalists now who've been imprisoned in Egypt, for example, for 12, 1,300 days. They are people of courage and integrity. We have them in this country, and journalism's a fine career.
0: Christian Porter is quoted by saying it's not terribly un- unusual to have proceedings such as this held in secret. Um, first, yeah, Got sorry, on. you go. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, what do you make of these comments and do you actually think parts of this trial should be suppressed?
1: No. Look, um, if we have to call a, a former spy, of course we have to protect the identity of that person and there's no objection to it. Now, Christian Porter said to David Spears on Insiders a few weeks ago, Oh, well, judges close courts all the time. The police asked for a court to be closed, you know, identity of, of the victims in sexual assault cases, all those sort of things. But he just failed to mention one thing. It was him closing the court, not mm. a judge. I mean, that was just completely uh, wrong. Uh, it was misleading. He's the first law officer of our country, the first law officer. I was the first law officer of this tiny principality the ACT once as Attorney General. I wouldn't have dreamt that I would go on public air and make a statement like that that was palpably wrong and misleading. He said, judges all the time close court. Of course, and sometimes lawyers ask for the court to be closed to protect their own clients, particularly women victims of domestic violence and the rest. But that wasn't the issue. It's Christian Porter who issued a letter to tell the judge to give the greatest weight to his opinion. You're touching on that section of the
0: NSI Act to give the greatest weight to the Attorney General's argument. That's kind of interesting, right? Because the courts are meant to be independent of government altogether. So it's creating this unfair
1: judges system. Would you agree? Or that's the nub of the potential constitutional issue here. And really, you don't know what was behind Christian Porter's opinion to give the greatest weight to. Did you? Do you know? Does anyone in Australia beyond a few people in the courtroom? Know what his opinion was. He didn't turn up at court. By the way, he didn't come along, have the courage to announce what his opinion was. He sent bureaucrats in and bureaucrats to, I guess, second guess and say what the attorney general's opinion was that greatest weight should be given to. I I can't tell you what that evidence was. Uh, I I thought at times there was a little discomfort among bureaucrats who'd been sent in to do young Christian quarters work. That will be part of Australian history. When your generation reopened the book, that extraordinary week that I've never seen the like of in my 50-year legal career, that extraordinary week of evidence, hopefully, I'll be long gone, will be public and you'll know what a vast and deep threat to democracy that week presents.
0: Just even on face value in the act, without knowing anything about the trial, just that the judge is meant to come down on the side of the government. So Well, he's got
1: to give the greatest weight and he yeah. sends his officers and his public servants into court to justify his opinion or support his opinion or whatever they were there for. Uh, I must say, all but one of them I felt were very distinguished and eminent people of uh, great integrity. Mm. Uh, one was clearly not, but I can't go into that.
0: In your book, which is called Oil Under Troubled Waters, Australia's Sea Intrigue, you link past events of imperialism and sovereign power to current abuses of power. Do you think the future of whistleblowers in Australia and cases such as this will continue to be dealt with in this unjust
1: way? Why, why are there whistleblowers? Or, you know, mutineers, as some people keep telling me, is a proper description of my client witness k and um, why are there whistleblowers the answer is we need to have proper values instilled in both a big business where there are whistleblowers uh, coming from and in government it's not all a government issue it's not all about national security i mean remember the scandals of the tobacco industry asbestos mining all those issues workplace safety crime statistics uh, when you think of some of the great whistleblowers, Sergeant Arantz in New South Wales, who years ago revealed cooking of police crime statistics, so on. They are courageous and wonderful people. Isn't there a movie on at the moment? What's the movie on about um, a whistleblower over the Iraq war? Oh, i just forget it for a moment. Oh,
0: I'll, I'll find it and I'll put it in the description for people. Yeah. Uh,
1: you've got to sift out whistleblowers who are looking for a bit of fame. I don't think there are many. There has to be public interest disclosure capacity for public servants so they're not breaking the law by coming forward on serious matters of genuine public interest. In my view, Witness case search for a finding of unlawful conduct was proper, was in the public interest. And judging by the reaction across Australia, clearly Witness Kay's concerns about the change culture reflected the impropriety of the conduct uh, that I can't talk about.
0: Yeah. And do you think there should be more protections around people who are speaking out about things such as what's going on with your case?
1: Yes, there have to be effective mechanisms. There's a there's a role in Canberra called Inspector General of Intelligence and Security. That Inspector General has made clear in a letter to one of the crossbenchers, I think uh, Rex Ritz Patrick, Ritz Patrick from South Australia, that she doesn't propose to investigate this issue that Witness K came forward about. You know, I think uh, that says it all.
0: So what are your main concerns about this prosecution
1: at the moment? I've been a lawyer for so many years, conducting trials, defending people, seeking to find justice, both in civil cases and in criminal cases. And I face standing in the dock in the court where I've spent a uh, great part of my professional career. How, how do you think I feel? I mean, it's uh, like a bad dream. It's, it's awful. It, it's shocking. And what for? I represent a decent, honorable person who believes there's a cultural change happening that is wrong. I see good client of mine smeared, smeared and called, as the Soviets used to call their defectors back in the Russian days, Cold War days, disgruntled. Smeared as a disgruntled public servant. He was only after promotion. He only came to see Bernard Caleri because he didn't get his job. You know, I can guess that's the briefing uh, given to Labor opposition and a host of other people. Uh, slimy, sleazy, disgraceful, slandering, of a decent man. That's the sort of struggle behind the scenes and behind the scenes of my trial. I find that conduct so un-Australian. Of course, the misconduct in Dili is very, very un-Australian, very sneaky. And if you think uh, mothers would throw their babies into the sea, this is the children overboard affair. Most of your uh, listeners, the younger ones, maybe weren't even born or were very young at the time. But uh, that was a shocking image that Refugee mothers would throw a baby into the sea so they could uh, get a visa, get get to safety, and that kind of deceitful conduct is wrong. It shouldn't happen. And as we all know, I mean, I had this a grim experience of seeing mass graves in in Timor after the militia violence. Uh, I could see that the men's bodies uh, had entry wounds uh, to the front, and so many times. And so sadly, you'd see that the women had turned their backs. Those holding babies, they turned their backs. And uh, babies, of course, leave no bones of just gristle. So uh, we could tell they'd been holding a baby from the baby shawls in their arms, in the mother's arms, but they turn their backs. So a mother doesn't uh, put a child in the sea. And it, it was such an evil proposition that attacked all motherhood. And I, I found that shocking and I find what Witness K told me equally shocking and consistent with a pattern of deceit that should be disowned by every Australian, it is being disowned by my generation, and I appeal to your generation to take action and disown that kind of disgusting behaviour.
0: With your background as a lawyer, how has your experience in court differed from
1: what you're used to? I'm uplifted by being in court in front of the jury. I can only think of one or two trials where I thought the jury, maybe they got it wrong. Uh, I mean, what, where else can we have in a democracy but a true jury? And I have, uh, incidentally, Jen, under Section 80 of the Constitution, Australian Constitution, I have a right to a jury trial and everything that goes with it. And in my view, a secret trial where the jury don't get seen by the public, where they may not see some of the evidence, where the judge gives them directions of greatest weight. You've got this other voice from this young attorney permeating and, in my view, corrupting the constitutional process. You've got a very serious situation. I have been uplifted by a career in the law. It's sort of Shakespearean that I'm going to go into the dock and I face imprisonment. For assisting witness K get a finding of unlawful conduct. To hear a judge the other day say gratuitously, uh, "Well, feelings of injustice or a thought that it was unjust." No such thing. Of course, it was unjust, but the real issue was misconduct carried out by an agency at the behest of a government that said mothers would throw their kids into the, their babies into the sea to get a visa. There's a pattern of deceit disgraceful deceit, they must cover that up, this current government, and determined to cover the political embarrassment and using a Trojan horse argument that it would lower our reputation in the region, as if our reputation in the region isn't at the lowest it's ever been. Look at it. What did our Prime Minister say about rising sea levels in the Pacific Islands? He said the Pacific Islands has come here and picked fruit. I mean, that's, that's what your generation have to remedy. I might go to jail, who knows? I'm 76, I haven't got much more time anyway. But your people have to do something, you must.
0: How has this kind of impacted your life in Canberra?
1: Well, um, I'm at home. Uh, I, I'm not doing trial work. I'm old-fashioned, I, I'm, I'm innocent until proven guilty. I could go in and robe up and, and go and do jury trial work. But it, there, there's a sort of celebrated issue that might distract a jury uh, and might, uh, how do you know, a jury won't be probably, judging public reaction, thinking he's a good bloke. They've got to give an absolute objective mind to the issue before the court, not whether Bernard Caleri needs a thumbs up or a thumbs down. So I'm not doing trial work. My career has stopped. I've had to borrow money. Uh, When we subpoenaed Woodside and Conoco, the companies that were going to benefit from the Team or C negotiations, they, their lawyers said it would be uh, it would cost them 100 to 150 thousand to produce the papers that we were subpoenaing. I don't have that money, but a, a very kind Australian philanthropist in Melbourne lent me 200 thousand. So we told them that we've got the money, produce the papers, and then uh, when Woodside produced documentary records, uh, Mr Porter's officers came to the court and said they wanted them, and I haven't seen them. That's
0: that's so unjust, just even, it's, yeah, I'm kind of lost for words at this point. I've read a lot about it. Definitely hearing it from you is way different from what I've read or even your book. But well, my, book's very dense.
1: my book's very dense. I spent years up there. It, it was meant to be an historical record. It wasn't meant to be a novel or a good read. In fact, not even my family have got their way through it. <laughs> I, mean, I, I I wrote it as a record. I didn't write it to get a pat on the back. anything i just knew that given my age and the criticisms i'm making the dangers that presented itself once the government raided my office and told indeed uh, terrorists that i would be working uh, had been working with members of intelligence services you can imagine the threat that posed to my uh, family my my children grandchildren and to my young staff i had in in england my young young women lawyers who were revealed by this stupid and incompetent raid on my law practice to be working for a lawyer who apparently was representing a member of intelligence services. Right then was the height of the kind of terrorist season. And just think of what I thought about getting onto paper, the real history, the true story. So I'm sorry it's a hard read, but It it has to be done for posterity, for your generation.
0: Yeah, it's definitely necessary because I think you're the person that's actually been through the experience. If anyone else wrote it, it'd be kind of them on the outside. So it's dense, but the way it's written is really, like you see why it's that way and how it leads to these conclusions. Yeah, Um, someone
1: someone told me it reads like a legal brief (laughs) because every time I I made a conclusion or assertion, I footnoted it with... (laughs) Papers and documents.
0: (laughs) I feel you can't really blame blame you for that. (laughs) You've mentioned that you've been to almost forty court appearances. Do you see this case as kind of a deflection of government or a denial of how neoliberalism and economic imperialism has come into Australian? Well, when the
1: government said that they wanted the papers that we'd asked Woodside to produce for national security reasons, it said all about why. Foreign Minister Alexander Downer went to work as a consultant after he left Parliament for Woodside. And why the head of Foreign Affairs during the misconduct period, Dilly, really I can't tell you again what that misconduct was. And um, the head, the late Calvert, he went to work on the board of Woodside. Neo-liberalism, neo-colonialism, exploiting the petroleum reserves of the poverty-stricken Timorese is a throwback to the British Empire days, isn't it? I was an honorary lawyer for years and years and years. Um, here for the pacific islander community they're nice people they're lovely people and i'm so sorry that they see us at climate conferences now as deniers and it, that's all got to be repaired I, I hope it is
0: there's recently been a push for an parliamentary inquiry into the treatment of yourself and Witness K. Do you think it's possible to reinstate this go mindset you kind of talk a bit about in your book that Australia's departed from? Yes,
1: yeah, look, I grew up straight after the Second World War. My father had been killed in action. I never met my father. My generation were really marked by that war. And then our, our dairy farm down near Wollongong was resumed by the Commonwealth Government for a migrant refugee camp. So I ended up going to school. With German kids, Dutch kids, Italian kids. I saw my first sandwiches that didn't have butter on, they're just lumps of cheese between dry bread. I mean, I, I got multicultured long before we got common vowel ending names in the Australian community. We all grew up suffering, and, and I don't think my generation wanted to see war again. And there I was sitting in class with German kids. And my father had been shot down as a fighter pilot from Wollongong. He was born in Wollongong, but I, I, I came to terms with that. But the one thing I, my generation, I think a lot of us believed in, was that we would be a new country, a new world, exemplary world. I know we got it wrong a bit. We were going to dam every river. We started irrigation schemes that ended up with salination and environmental challenges, but by and large, we were going to defeat polio and diphtheria medicine was going to advance and we were going to have a great country look where we are part of the cause is decent people and i'm partly to blame i suppose uh, didn't didn't go into the federal parliament a lot of people who should have gone into parliament a lot of your generation who don't want to have a bar of it should have a bar of it, and we should have a wider cross-section and we've got too many politicians in the parliament who've been young labor, young liberal, and who've never worked out there, done a trade studio, and haven't gone and worked. And funny thing is, you know, sometimes we're interviewing young lawyers to join our practice, and or the interns uh, to do their practice practice year. And I've noticed that the kids who've worked in the service industry as wait, waiters, waitresses, barristers, and other work with people, they've got these skills of dealing with some of the Pure academic kids and no criticism at all don't have. I think, you know, when political parties want to promote youngsters up the line, they should go for young people who've been out there in the community who understand and do things. But a lot of the politicians you're seeing these days have known nothing other than being employed in ministerial offices all their careers until their bosses retired and they took their bosses' places. Now, I'm not making any personal individual criticisms and some good ones among them but by and large our parliament's not representative enough and that's why we've got down to this narrow authoritarian model where we've got this current government and the current the young attorney general who's not, not really you know reflecting I think the values that we need in the community.
0: So you're talking a bit about values there and like the misalignment of leadership. Also, in your book, you've mentioned before how in government there's this core value clash. Do you think this is kind of what's driving your prosecution?
1: I was listening to former Prime Minister Julia Gillard, I think it was last Saturday, Saturday before on Life Matters, talking about a recent book she's written, and she was asked about the bear pit of Parliament that she went into. And she made this remark, which seemed quite reasonable to me, that Parliament's a clash of of values. But all too often, some of the values that clash, Jen, are values like truth. Well, there aren't shades of truth. And I think we all know that politicians lie, lie openly. We get deceived. That's not a clash of values. Truth isn't a matter you can uh, bargain away, argue away. This is this, just truth. It's black and white. So I don't see it. I don't see Parliament or the bear pit or question time or anything about where one party says well we've got the truth and the other party says we've got the truth truth just got one universal truth it's yes or no I I come from courtroom where there is a truth or an untruth and parliament is so different from a courtroom these days do you have any
0: final remarks for the people listening
1: I I just think the baton's pretty well over to you guys you um it's wonderful that you've formed this young diplomats group and a bit ironic really i've been a bit of a critic of our australian diplomacy at times it's not all bad but full marks to you jen full marks to whoever's helping you with this program and it's, it's a privilege to speak to people young people who've got all their hair and got all the brains Yes, <laughs> <laughs> mark and you guys will see what's true and i don't think you can be a pup. Good on you.
0: Thanks for that. I'd just like to quickly mention, I think it'd be rude not to, that your book, I'll put the link in the description, it's called Oil Under Troubled Water, Australia's Timor Sea Intrigue. It's got a lovely review from Steve Brax at the start. It's a really good book, so I personally recommend it. So, yeah, just thank you so much for your time, Bernard. It's been a pleasure and a privilege speaking with you today and I'm really grateful that you've taken up the time. Thank you. If we've sparked your interest or you want to hear more about a certain topic, contact us via our socials, website or the link in the description. This is Global Questions and thanks for listening.